Bibles, if you would please, and we'll open them to Revelation chapter 15. This evening we begin this 15th chapter, and in this chapter we are winding down God's plan to redeem the world from the curse of sin. This chapter takes place in the last part of the tribulation. We've denoted this as being the great tribulation because the last part of this, the last half of the tribulation is worse even than the first part. And that's almost inconceivable because we've been looking through the uh, first part of this and uh, the first part of the tribulation is worse than any disaster film that you've ever seen. And in this description, it seems very, uh, very hard for us to believe that anything could be worse than that. And I don't know that there's anyone who could really explain all of these things and just really tell us how terrible that it will be. But then comes the last three and a half years, and this is when the Antichrist has reached the zenith of his power. And the rising of the Antichrist means that there's coming this horrendous showdown between the forces of evil and the king of righteousness. And as we approach this 15th chapter, things are moving rapidly towards the second coming of Christ. Now, I want to remind you that the second coming is not one event that we call the rapture. In fact, we might be better off by calling uh, the rapture the rapture in the air and then speaking of the second coming as the commencement of Christ's millennial reign upon the earth. And so this is where we are headed in chapter 15. Uh, thus far, we've seen seven seals that have been broken on redemption scroll. And under the seventh seal, there were seven trumpets that were blown by seven angels. Now, six of those trumpets we've seen so far, and we've looked at the judgments that came from them. And each one of those judgments was frightful in its own right. And then the seventh trumpet was blown in chapter 11, verse number 15. But we've yet to see the judgments that come from that trumpet. And those we'll see in chapter 16. But chapter 15 is the uh, preliminaries to that. It's the preparation for the judgments that come in chapter 16. So these uh, last plagues that come upon the earth, they are the last. They are the worst of all of the plagues that have been sent thus far. And chapter 14 has given us information in anticipation of the seven plagues. Uh, the angel in chapter 14, verse number 9, warns the followers of the Antichrist that judgment is coming. And then in verses 10 and 11, we learn that those wicked followers of the Antichrist will experience the full fury of the wrath of the Lamb. They will be cast into the fires of hell where they will suffer eternally. Now, tonight we're going to begin this 15th chapter, and we're going to look at the preparation for the last plagues that will be poured out. These are the final judgments of Christ, and then he comes with ten thousands of his saints to rule the earth in perfect peace and righteousness. So if you'd stand with me, please. We're looking at the 15th chapter. We're going to read the entire chapter, verses 1 through 8. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee. 
for thy judgments are made manifest. And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials, full of the wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word and for those who have come tonight to hear the uh, preaching of your word. Lord, open up our hearts and there's great information that we learn here. Help us to see what you'd have us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It seems that for weeks and weeks we've been hearing about bad news, bad news, and more bad news. I spent uh, several weeks in the beginning of the study looking at the first three chapters in Revelation. And there we discussed the seven churches of Asia and the many types of, different types of problems that those churches had. And I told you at that time that most people get bogged down in those first three chapters and they're anxiously awaiting that those would be over and then we would begin to talk about the tribulation and the Antichrist and of course that dreaded number 666. And this really seems to be the most intriguing part of the book and it's the one that provokes the most questions. But since the time that we looked at those first three chapters, now we've had 11 more and I don't know about you, but you've got, uh, got to be getting a, a little bit tired of this agonizing tribulation that's being explained here. I'm getting sick of the Antichrist. And I'll be glad when all of this is over, it's finally gone, and then we can talk about the righteous kingdom of the Lord. This book is a revelation of the king, and I'm going to be happy when we get to see him when he's in his splendor and his majesty ruling in the kingdom here upon the earth. But I don't complain about this part of the book because when we get through all of these parts and after seeing all of this bad stuff, all that it does is cause the Lord to shine in a much more brilliant way in all of his brightness in the righteousness of the kingdom. And I suppose that there would be some who would say, well, why do you call him good? And why do you call uh, Jesus righteous? Because in chapter 14, it says there, he treads out the winepress of the wrath of God. He tramples his enemies uh, and splatters their blood all over his garments. So why do we call him good? Why do we call him righteous when the things that we read here are so bloody and violent? Well, I call him good because in order for us to live in peace, evil has to be conquered. And I call him good because I should have been the one that stamped on, stomped on, and uh, the blood should be trampled uh, out of me. And I call him good because of his mercy and his grace. He was willing to take and have his body beaten mercilessly and to die on the cross and to suffer infinitely so that I wouldn't have to endure the fires of hell. And I call him good because unless he comes to purge this world of the curse and to put down all enemies and to come and establish this kingdom of righteousness, and the world would exist forever with sin and sickness, with heartache and with death. And I don't want to go to hell, and I don't want to live on the earth with an enemy that's constantly seeking to devour me. So I can't wait until Christ comes and he wraps all of this up and death and hell are defeated forever. 
And we're reading here the plan of how this is going to be accomplished. Something has to take place in order to end all of this. It's not going to happen by accident. And so we see the Lord is going to change things and he will make all things new. So we're going to look into this text. And I've chosen uh, to divide this message into three parts. And I want to give you five words that describe the events of chapter 15. Now we'll get into just one of the words tonight and the others as we go uh, through in the next couple of weeks. But number one, the first word that I want to give you is the sign. John says, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Now the eye, of course, is the Apostle John. He is the eyewitness to Revelation. And he says that he saw another sign. Now you remember what the word sign means? Uh, We've seen it before. This is the third sign in Revelation. The word means wonder. And he says this is a great wonder, a great sign, which in fact makes this emphatic that what John saw was utterly amazing to his eyes. Uh, This word carries with it the meaning of being startling and shocking. It's great. It's the word mega in the Greek. It's a mega wonder. John saw another sign in heaven. Now if we look back in chapter 12, just... Uh, back there a few pages, we find the other two signs that John saw. Uh, The first one is in verse number 1 of chapter 12, where it says, And there appeared a great wonder, that's the word sign, a great sign in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. So that first sign was a woman, and she represents the nation of Israel. Then in verse number 3, there was the second sign that he saw, and there appeared another wonder, a sign in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. And that old dragon that John saw is the old serpent who's called Satan. So those were the first two signs that he saw in heaven. And now we come to this text in chapter 15, verse 1, and we see a third sign. These are marvelous things that John sees in heaven. Now we may... Uh, not expect some of these that we see here. Uh, The sign of Israel, we might expect that, but some have a lot of consternation about that second sign that John sees in heaven. We don't expect that we would see Satan in heaven. But as we learn when we study that passage, that's, this is Satan's very last time because Satan is going to be cast down to the earth. He'll never be able to enter into heaven again. He'll never accuse again. He'll never trouble us again. He'll never be able to do his worst again. Most people think that Satan rules hell at the moment and that he's been there since the original fall. But hell does not belong to Satan. Hell belongs to the sovereign God. And when the end comes, Satan is going to be a lifer. He's going to receive a living death sentence and he'll be tormented in the fires of hell for eternity. But now we have the third John or third sign that John sees, and uh, this is the worst of God's wrath that's about to be poured out upon the earth. And there are three outstanding observations concerning the sign that John sees. The first is the seven plagues. There are seven angels with seven plagues. Now, there are a lot of angels that we've seen in Revelation. In places, we've seen thousands upon thousands of angels, ten thousands of angels. And then we've seen some very specific angels that do specific work that God has called them to do. And angels, of course, have a wonderful ministry for believers. The Bible calls them ministering saints. 
and I'm sure that we have no, or ministering spirits rather, and I'm sure that we don't have any idea how many times that angels protect us throughout the day. I mean, even as we read that scripture this morning in Psalm chapter 91, where it tells us there that the angels protect us and keep us from, from harm. Well, the angels do that, but that's not all that angels do. I mean, angels are good to believers, but they can be absolutely devastating to unbelievers. Now, we witnessed that already in the Old Testament where we saw there, remember, in one night that there was an angel that killed 185,000 soldiers. And so throughout Revelation, angels have been the bane of lost men, and they've carried out God's judgments. And here we see that there are seven angels with seven last plagues, and these angels are the most fearsome of all. These aren't cute little cupids with bows and arrows, and they aren't effeminate pansies that are afraid to kill a fly. But these are awesome creatures of godly destruction, and they enforce God's commands without batting an eye. Now we look at this word plague, and that would conjure up ideas to us of the black plague or bubonic plague, and we usually relate that word to disease. But the word used in the Bible... And the Old Testament uh, refers to such things as when God brought all of those uh, evil things upon Egypt and just before the Exodus that enabled the people of God to leave Egypt and go into the promised land. And then looking at the very same word in the New Testament, we find that it also is used in places where it describes beatings, where it speaks about a person being flogged and uh, skin being ripped from them until their bones are exposed. And so these seven last plagues, I mean, the word is significant because these are death blows that leave the world reeling and unable to recover. And in these, the word of God says, has filled up the wrath of God. And so here we see that God is pouring out all of his wrath. God's unmitigated wrath is poured out. I, I don't know that we would ever be able to describe it. It's pure wrath, if you could put those words together. It's wrath that is untempered with any of God's mercy and grace. The word actually refers to judgment. And if you wanted to see a more uh, frightening picture of this, what you would do is look at the cross of Christ. Because when Jesus hung on the cross, the full fury of God's wrath against sin was poured out on him. The judgment of sin was against Christ. And darkness and blackness over the whole earth during the time that Christ was crucified was the result of that. And Jesus suffered in those hours on the cross what no man has ever suffered before. That's the kind of wrath that's contained in these plagues. And it's also significant that they're called the last plagues. And that word is also emphatic because these are the last ones that are needed. They end the plagues. There's no opposition left after this is over. And so God's wrath has been poured out and his wrath is enough that by the time these plagues are through, Christ is ready to rule in an everlasting throne on the everlasting throne of his kingdom. And then there's something else that John sees as he peers into heaven. That is the sea of glass. Verse number 2. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And them that had gotten victory, the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having their harps of God. Now, John is describing this in the only way that he could. Now, he's looking into heaven and obviously seeing sights that man could really not fully describe. And so he looks at this area that's in front of the throne of God, and he gives it words of description, the first thing probably that comes to his mind and, and what he's able to describe it as. And, and he says it's like a sea of glass. 
Now there he's not talking, of course, about a sea of water because there is no sea like that in heaven. But he means that in appearance, this was like a looking over a tranquil ocean, a smooth ocean without even a ripple where it reflects the sky that's above it. Now I have uh, some pictures of the Mediterranean Sea on a bright, sunshiny day, and the sea is just a beautiful blue. And I'm sure that that's what John may have had on his mind as he was thinking about this. But he looks at it and the surface is slick. It's reflective. And no doubt the glory of the throne of God is reflected up off of that sea of glass. But then he says that the sea of glass is mingled with fire. And commentators have suggested different meanings for that fire. Some have said, well, this is the fire of God's judgment. And then there are others who say that it represents the fiery trials that the saints have been through throughout the tribulation. Now, I don't know which it is. I think most likely it refers to the judgment of God because God's full wrath uh, is about to be poured out because of what his precious people have endured during this whole time of the tribulation. And God is about to avenge them of their deaths. And that's exactly what they prayed for in chapter 6. And God remembers that request. There it says, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And so that time has come. And as surely as the Scripture says, God says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And then thirdly in this scene, we see the standing of the martyrs. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. And so standing on this platform are the faithful saints that have refused to give in to the beast. They wouldn't take his name. They would not receive his mark. They wouldn't join in and all of those wicked practices of his kingdom. And in chapter 14, verse number 12, it says there that they kept the commandments of God and of the faith of Jesus. So here we're talking about people of testimony. These are persevering saints. And it's truly remarkable to see how they hold on to their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ despite all of the persecutions and the cruelty, the the hatred that's been poured out against them. They stand strong for the Lord. Someone told me the other day, that uh, they were going out the door, I think, after one of our services, and said that they thought that Berean Baptist Church is an oasis in a sea of apostasy. Isn't it a shame what's happened in the name of Christ by compromising Christianity? And the saddest part of this is that this has gone on for so long that people do not recognize true Christianity when they see it. They don't even know how to act when they get around godly music in a church that preaches strictly from the Word of God. You know, I've seen people that would come into our church and they would sit down for five minutes and then walk, get up and walk out. And I've seen some that hit the door right after our forum class on Sunday morning and then some that sit through about five minutes of the sermon that comes afterwards and then off they go. Well, five minutes, I haven't even had time to get warmed up. And I, I suppose if they stayed a little bit longer, they'd probably melt right there in the pew. But the problem is that people can't handle the truth of God's word anymore. They don't know the truth. They don't want to hear the truth. And as Paul said, he warned us about this very thing. He said, people are going to heap to themselves 
Because of their itching ears, they will heap to themselves teachers that assuage that. They'll scratch their itches. They'll make them comfortable in their sins. And preachers just love to play church with people. But not these people. These are martyrs for their faith. The scripture says that they have died keeping the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. You're not going to get that kind of commitment from the purpose-driven crowd. Uh, they're, they're, go- they're trying to get the seekers in. If that means that the seekers are looking for the mark of the beast, well, they've got a program to fit it. They can fix you right up. And then there's another thing that I think is interesting here. Verse number 2 says, They got the victory over the beast and over the image and the number of his name. But aren't these the very same people that were killed by him? Aren't these the very same ones that were shut out of all commerce because they would not take his number? They couldn't buy or sell. So how is it possible that the Scripture teaches us that they have the victory? Well, do you know the wonderful thing about our relationship with the Lord? We're in this for the long haul. You see, we're part of a plan that stretches all the way from eternity past to eternity future. The kingdom of the Antichrist is just a little bitty blurb on that timeline and really doesn't, doesn't even rate the notice of a grain of sand. So the beast stands there with his chest all puffed out. He's singing his own praises. The Antichrist is prancing around like he's really somebody. But you know what the Scripture says about this? It says that God sees all of that and God laughs. A couple of weeks ago, we were looking at that preview of the Battle of Armageddon in the Old Testament. And in the psalm, we read in Psalm chapter 2, where the psalmist says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. And right there, you can plug the Antichrist into that scripture. God laughs at his puny antics. Do you remember in chapter 13 where it said there that the Antichrist shouts out blasphemies against God and against his people? And it says that power was given to him for three and a half years to do that. And do you remember where we said that power came from? If that power came from Satan, then his time would have lasted forever. Satan would have kept giving him opportunities to blaspheme the people of God. But he's not able to do that. The scripture says he's limited to 42 months. And that's because God is the one that has given him the space to spew out all of that venom. And that tells us that God is holding the leash. He lets it out for 42 months and then no longer. That's it. And so he has no power to go on any longer. And then we think about that image. Here it says that they got victory over his image. And do you remember the image that we studied about, how the Antichrist sets that, up that image of himself and demands that people bow down to him? And it told us there that that image could speak. And I'm sure that the followers of the Antichrist were cowering down with fear when they see that image speak. But not God's people. God's people aren't afraid of that. God looks at that like a tinker toy. And he says, oh, what a, what a scary image, a G.I. Joe with a pull string on his back. Pull a string and let him talk. You know, it kind of reminds me of these old Japanese movies with Godzilla and those cheesy special effects. You know what I'm talking about? 
And God just grabs this image that the beast sets up and he plays with it, you know, and it's, oh, you think you're going to beat me and I'm going to beat you and all of that. And God's fighting with that little image of the beast and he takes it and he just twists its head right off. It pops off and God casts it aside. And then God just laughs at it all. And the people that are standing on the sea of glass, they say, show us some more, let's see some more. And what God is doing, he's just having another of his play days with the devil. And the sorry thing about it is, devil, is that we're still Captain Kirk and you have to be the Klingons. So the beast has then done this powerful thing by killing these faithful followers of the Lamb. He thinks that he's done a powerful thing. But you remember in chapter 14, verse number 13, the Scripture said there that their deaths are blessed. In fact, the Scripture says that all they've done is they've fallen asleep and then they wake up in the presence of God. And there they are, amassed upon this sea of glass in front of the throne of God. And then they're going to join Christ. They will mount up with wings like eagles. And then, as Jude tells us, there will come this tsunami of ten thousands of God's saints combined with an army of angels. They'll sweep over the earth like a plague of locusts and they'll strip bare every last vestige of the beast's kingdom. And then God's going to take him by the tail. And like that squiggly, writhing little vermin that he is, God is going to drop him into the lake of fire. This is what the scriptures mean when it says the saints have the victory. And so the Antichrist and his followers will cry out in torment while the saints of God are singing with their harps. So what we have here is just a magnificent scene. I mean, I I can see the excitement building here as these last plagues are prepared. God is going to pour them out on the earth. And when he does, he'll flush the Antichrist off of the face of the earth forever. And the only mystery is that when he flushes down the bowl, does he go clockwise or counterclockwise? Well, that's the scene. This is what's being set up for us here. Chapter 16 is going to tell us about the judgments. Chapter 17 and 18 show us the effects upon the kingdom of the beast and as it begins to crumble. Chapter 19 talks about the king of kings and the lord of lords who will smash it all into oblivion. Then he begins to rule. And then in chapter 20, uh, Satan is thrown into the bottomless pit and Christ reigns for a thousand years. And then in chapters 21 and 22, we have the new heavens and the new earth. And where are we on that timeline? Well, God chose us from before the foundation of the world. He carries out that perfect plan, and then he's going to plant us forever in the glories of heaven. And chapter 15 is the beginning of that, the winding down of all of this. The final plagues here are being prepared to purge the world of sin. So sin and death will be defeated and heaven gained for all of God's people. Now, we're a little bit early tonight. I I really wanted to go a little bit further than this, but for me to take up the next point, which I think is a, a fairly important one, would put a strain on people in the other parts of the building. And I want to look at verse number 3 in the next message where it talks about this, this song that's sung by the redeemed. And what a powerful song it is and how it relates to the Old Testament. So we just don't have time to go into that tonight. And so uh, we're going to study that, that song of the saints in the next lesson. And the saints of Berean Baptist Church are going to sing a song right now and we're going to go home. So next week we'll come back to this and we'll look at uh, more preparation for these plagues. And we'll see what what God is going to do with with the purging of the world, uh, the curse of sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the word that's opened up to us tonight. 
And I'm thankful, as I've said so many times before, that as your people, believers in you at this very moment, that we'll never have to worry about facing these things that are coming. Uh, you're coming back. You promised that you would do that, and you will take your people out of this world. And we won't have to worry about tribulation, but we'll be part of those saints that will come back and help to establish the millennial kingdom upon the earth. So, Lord, we thank you for this. We thank you again for the time to go into your word and for those who have come out to hear it tonight. We just give you the praise in Jesus' name.